Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Should have an outline there somewhere for you. So let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll look at uh, Judges chapter 7. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather together as a body of Christ and open our own personal copy of your divine word. And, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our relationship uh, with you here tonight and edify us through the teaching of your word. And just thank you for our fellowship we share with one another. And pray for those who uh, are traveling. Think of the McCafferty's and uh, Paul and Inga Dow and, and others, Lord. We just pray that you would, uh, um, Peggy and Sam, and just pray that you would uh, bless their trip and, and bring them back safely to us. And, and Father, we just uh, thank you for tonight and pray you bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Judges chapter 7. Before we go there, I want you to turn over in the New Testament to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Tonight we're going to see that God has the best plan. The best plan. Sometimes we don't always agree but we know it to be true because that's what his word tells us clearly. And so sometimes we need to be uh, reminded that uh, God's, God's plan is the best. So uh, look at James chapter 4, uh, verse 13 to 17. It says there, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What James is explaining to us here, he counsels us against uh, the foolishness of making decisions without any consideration for the will of God in the matter. That's not a wise thing for a believer to do. And what James is saying here is that we can make all the plans that we want. Uh, But God always has the final say, right? He always has the final say in the matter. And we learn that his plans for this situation, and we learn, um, we make our plans based on his plans, and we find out that he had the best plan all along. But as humans, um, we like to make our own plans. We like to be in control. Uh, We want things to go the way we want them to go. But have you ever considered that God always has a better plan. A um, couple examples. Think of Peter and the others when they fished all night without catching a fish. Remember that story in Luke chapter 5? Jesus told them to go out again into the deep water and they would catch fish. And as fishermen, they thought, this is a stupid plan. <laughs> this isn't how fishing works. But when they obeyed the Lord, Peter found out that God had the best plan. Or in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, right? We're coming up on Passion Week next week, and what did Peter do? 
Peter rebuked the Lord. I mean, can you imagine rebuking the Lord? Peter thought he had a good plan. He thought, wait, um, you know, when you're going to do what? You're going to go die? I don't think so. But when Jesus went to the cross and he paid for sins forever, Peter found out that God had the best plan. Or even in the Old Testament, Goliath, David and Goliath. Remember that story, 2 Samuel 17? David is coming out to meet Goliath. Uh, And uh, what does Goliath plan to do? He tells us, he says he plans to kill David and feed his carcass to the scavengers in the field. Like, David, this is what I'm going to do to you with your little stupid little slingshot. But when that stone from the slingshot sank deep into the forehead of Goliath, what happened? His plan changed radically, right? He fell to the earth dead. He found out that God had the best plan. Or even with Israel, the nation of Israel, when they sent the spies out in in Numbers 13 and 14 into Canaan, and they came back and they saw the giants living there. And they made plans to find themselves a new leader and go back to Egypt. They said, we're not going over there. These, These people are huge. But over the next 40 years, as they died one by one in the wilderness, they learned that God had the best plan. (laughs) And that's the way it always is. That's the way it will always be. Um, And we can go out through example after example after example. We just don't have the time to do that. But tonight we see another example right here in the book of Judges. When Gideon and his army went into battle... They must have had a plan. You don't go into battle willy-nilly. You don't go in there going, eh, whatever, whatever happens, happens. No, when you go to war, when you go to battle, you have to have a plan. They had a plan, but before the battle was joined in and the victory was won, they found out that God's plan was a lot better. He had the best plan. So God has the best plan. And when we look at this text tonight, we'll read it and then we'll just take some time to go through it. But we're going to learn that God's plan may may not be the easiest plan for us. It may not be the most popular plan for us. It may not even seem like the smartest plan. It may not make sense logically. But, once again, God always has the best plan. And so let's look at Judges chapter 7. And... uh, We'll take time to read through the the text, and then we'll draw out a couple things. Uh, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them, remember they're the enemy, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. That's what God said he was going to do. But he said, they got too many people. you got too many people. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000. Can you imagine? you got this huge army. 22,000 of the people returned. Just because he gave them the opportunity. And 10,000 remained. 
And the Lord said to Gideon, you know what? The people are still too many, verse 4. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. Sounds like a good plan. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. There are these two groups of people. Verse 6, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his own home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Verse 9, that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels, their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. That would be a little intimidating, I would think. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. So he goes down, he's kind of spying out the land here. And he hears these two guys talking, and his comrade tells him a dream. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and stuck it and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. That was the dream. And his comrade, verse 14, answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon the son of Joash, the man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian in all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, 100 each, and put trumpets in their hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do as, as I do, do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. Verse 18, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, around 10 p.m., when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands the torches 
and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and they fled when they blew the 300 trumpets. I wonder if they're all same note or <laughs> I wonder, you know, I wonder what that sounded like. The Lord said, Every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. In other words, the Midianites and the Amalekites, they, they got all confused. They started to fight each other. And the army fled as far as Bethshita towards Zerath, and as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabeth. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zeb they killed at the wilderness or the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Pretty crazy story. Pretty interesting account of how God can work on our behalf. Well, let's look at the realities of God's plan here. First of all, verses 2 to 7, you see that the God's plan is a different plan. It's a different plan. Um, Gideon was leading an army into battle with 32,000 soldiers. He was still a long shot because he was going up against a much bigger army. And so how did God whittle down the army of Gideon? He does it through a process. And sometimes when we make plans for our own lives, we always try to uh, stack the deck in our favor, do we not? We want ourselves to have the advantage in any plan. That's just kind of common sense. It's human nature. However, God usually has a different plan than we do, doesn't he? He always does. Um, think about it. David was just a shepherd. He wasn't even called to the initial meeting, right? I mean, he, you know, that kid, he's not it for sure. He's not going to be the king. But guess what? God had a different plan. Or you think of somebody like Job in the Old Testament, very wealthy man. He just wanted to worship God, live righteously, love his family, enjoy his wealth. But guess what? God had a different plan. You think of Joseph and Mary, young couple, wanted to get married, raise a family. Guess what? God had a different plan. Saul of Tarsus, what did he set out to do? He set out to destroy Christianity. He wanted to murder Christians. But guess what? God had a different plan. And see, I think the test of a truly consecrated life is that it's willing to submit <laughs> to the plans of God. If your life is truly consecrated to the Lord, then you're willing to say, okay, Lord, whatever you want. I don't even have to like it. I'm willing to do it. That's why in Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, 
Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remember that? What? Remove this cup from me. Cup of your wrath. I don't want to go through this. As a human being, I'm not looking forward to this. Nevertheless, what's he say? Not my will, but yours be done. That should be our prayer. That should be our mantra. Not my will, but yours be done. Even when it contradicts our plan. We may have something gloriously planned out. But you know what? God changes things up. He does it all the time. And it's just a lot easier to be a little more flexible with our plans, which for some of us is hard. It's difficult. Because we don't like to change. We don't like to change things. Paul had to deal with this in Acts 16. Look over at Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 9. It tells us that they were out and they were about and they were going evangelizing and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And then it says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I thought the Bible said go into all the world. Wait a minute, what do you mean I'm forbidden? Verse 7, it says, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That was their plan. They had a, a, you know, they just didn't go out aimlessly they had a plan but god changed it verse 9 it says and a vision appeared to paul in the night and a, a man of macedonia was standing there in this vision urging him and saying come over to macedonia and help us god had a different plan god's plan is a different plan it may not be the same plan as yours but it's also a declared plan and this is what we see in verses 9 to 14. Here is Gideon. He has 32,000 men, and they're reduced down. His army is reduced down to 300. I mean, that's like hopeless, right? I mean, I don't think you'd want to go to battle against all the enemies. He's getting ready to attack a force that is many times larger than his own. I mean, just look at verse 12. Remember, we read this. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east, everybody that threw in with them, all the enemies of Israel, lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And they had so many camels, it was like the sea of the seashore. It just went on and on and on. I, I think sometimes of when they invaded Iraq, the United States, they invaded with such force most of the Iraqi forces just fled. They fled. It was overwhelming force. And here, they're looking at the force they're going up against, and God said, well, you got too many people. What do you mean we got too many people? Look at all these, all the enemy. But see, God isn't saying, you know, I just want you to take a leap in the dark. He's asking for a clear uh, step of faith. And God gives Gideon grace, doesn't he? He says, you know what? If you're a little intimidated by going down there, I mean, I think you should just go down there. But if, you, but if you're afraid, verse 10, to go down there, he knew he was afraid. He was probably petrified, even though he was a warrior, because the odds were just so far against him. If you're afraid, go down with your servant, and then you'll hear what they're talking about, your enemy. And I guarantee it's going to change your mind about going down there. 
when you hear what's going on. So we went down there and they heard that vision that basically said Gideon's going to be able to come down and, and take over because the Lord has given all, all the Midianites, the Amalekites, all the enemies into his hand. See, when it comes to us, when it comes to you and me, the Lord expects us to walk in obedience to his will. But he never asks us for a blind leap of faith. That is just not right. That's wrong. That's not what God asks. And God uses a lot of different ways to speak to his children throughout the Bible, through his people. He uses mainly today the word, his word, Romans ten seventeen. What's it say? So faith comes what? By hearing and hearing how? Through the word of Christ, right? That's why we preach the, teach the word of Christ, because that's how faith comes. He speaks through the Spirit. Acts 13, 2 in the New Testament, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, it says the Holy Spirit said, wow, that's pretty amazing. Now, this was all before they had the canon concluded, but still, it's pretty amazing how God speaks to his children. Or what we just read in Acts 16, that, that the Spirit forbid them to go. Uh, sometimes, even today, he speaks through other believers, does he not? How many times have you been maybe looking for an answer to a question you have, or uh, you know, you're looking for guidance, and, and God uses another brother or sister in your life to speak truth to your heart and provide that guidance? Acts chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. So Ananias departed, it says, and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, Immediately something like scales fell off his eyes. He regained his sight, and he arose, and he was baptized. He was converted. Amazing. He used Ananias there. Or in Genesis chapter 24, he even speaks through the circumstances of life. I'm not going to take time to read all this, but you can read that on your own because basically they're looking for a, 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 a wife for Isaac, remember? And they go to the, the, uh, the well and trying to figure out how this is going to work. And it all, it all works out. Um, the bottom line is this. God will always direct your feet plainly. He's not going to just not give you some form of direction. I mean, even with Abraham. Remember when Abraham had to leave his own country? He got called, and God didn't really... Tell them how, where, what direction. We're just, just you know, we're going to figure this out as we go. I know, but you're, you're going to learn as you learn to trust me each and every day. He won't leave us in doubt, in other words. He may not tell us the whole kit and caboodle. He's not going to tell us everything because we probably wouldn't do anything then. We'd be paralyzed in fear because his plan might be so big for us. We were going, whoa, there's no way. So he says, no, I'm going to leave this kind of... Like a good coffee, just drip, drip by drip. You're going to understand my will as you walk step by step. 
He has a declared plan. Um, he won't leave us in, in doubt. It's different, it's declared, but it's the best plan. In time, he will reveal what you need to know about his plan. But God's plan is also not just different and declared, it's also distinct in verses 15 to 23. It's a distinct plan. Let's look at the context here. Here's Gideon's men. Um, They were to surround the enemy. He had 300 guys. (laughs) Only 300. There's thousands of the enemy. Thousands. They were to sound the trumpets. They were to shout for battle and, and break these clay pitchers containing a candle. And God said to Gideon, if you do this, this will give you victory. I mean, that makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. It just doesn't make any sense. But guess what? They got victory. What a distinct plan. No one would have ever come up with a plan like this. That's what amazes me when you read through the Bible. One of the, to me, one of my heart thing is when I read the Bible, one of the testimonies is that this is the God, God's word. It's the, the way it's written. I mean, it doesn't glorify man. I mean, if man wrote this book, do you think that all the garbage in there about man would be in there? No. You know, it, it would have been written in such a way that makes us look just so good and it would have been logical. There's things in this book that are so illogical, you'll lose your mind if you try to figure it out. No one would ever come up with a plan like this. And had Gideon and his men said, hey, no way, we're not doing this. This is a suicide mission. Take these trumpets and these stupid little things with a candle in them. And, are you nuts? They would have missed out entirely on God's best for their lives. That's the way it is with God's plans, the plan of God. There are times when the Lord will lead you in directions that you could never, in your wildest imaginations, think of. And I'm sure we all have experienced this in our own Christian life. If we've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you look back on your own Christian experience and you say, wow, I remember when that happened. And it's amazing. Um, it's just very, I was speaking to someone the other day and they said, you know what? <clears throat> someone in their family got saved. And they said, in my wildest imagination, Nation, I'd never thought that would happen. Just never, never, never would have happened, but it did. <laughs> Incredible. And so when we go his way, we find out that his ways are always the best plan. You know, I'm always thinking, I always think of um, the book Through Gates of Splendor, written about Jim, Jim Elliot and and the, the, the people that went down there, they went down there with good intentions, young strapping men giving their wives to the Lord for missions and you know, leaving their wives and families behind initially and land there in their little bush plane. 
within an hour, they're dead. They're slaughtered. Not one survived. And you could say, what, what a waste. What a complete waste of human life. Why would you do something so stupid? Why would you do something so, well, do you think this out? I mean, who would have known that's what it took for that tribe one day to understand that Christ died for them? And that that whole scenario would turn around and that that tribe would come to Christ even though they killed the very missionaries that went there to give them the gospel. It's crazy. You, you would never think of that. So there's, there's realities that God has a plan. It's different, it's declared, it's distinct. But there's also requirements. There's requirements of God's plans. There's, there's, if a person or a church is decided to walk in the plan of God, they have to do certain things. Basically, three steps are necessary for this to happen in your life, personally, in the life of our church. First of all, God's plan requires surrender. <laughs> surrender. I mean, think about this. Gideon was a man with 32,000 followers. Now, compared to his enemies, that still wasn't a lot, but that's a lot. That's, that's a good group of people. But by following God's plan, he saw his army, the number that were following him, reduced vastly in number, all the way down to 300 people, 300 men. His rank was lowered, you might say, and his pride was crushed, no doubt. He's, re- he's, re- he's really reduced from General Gideon, the, over 32,000 men, to Gideon the barley cake. <laughs> you know, in the dream, I mean, that's what he ended up being, right? It's like, wait a minute, is he talking about me? <laughs> he went from being considered this great military leader of might to being called this biscuit. That would do something for your ego, will it not? And so what Gideon learned through this process of God taking him through this was that this fight was not about him. It wasn't about Gideon. It wasn't even about his army. It wasn't even about what? The enemy. All that's irrelevant to God. The battle was about the Lord. The battle was about the Lord. Gideon had come to a place where he was willing in his own personal life to lay down his plans. I guarantee you they had a plan. They laid it down when God told them what to do. They laid down their goals. He laid down his goals. They, he laid down his dreams. He laid down his will. He laid it all aside so that he might what? Surrender himself to the will of God. I mean, that is what the Lord still requires of those who would walk in his perfect will each and every day. We have to get up in the morning. It's not that we don't have a plan. We all have a plan every day. But when we wake up, Lord, here's my plan. (laughs) What's yours? And you roll up your sleeves and you get ready for battle. 
God always has the best plan. And those who see that reality are those who turn from their plan to go with his plan. Even spiritually, right? I mean, how many of us, for maybe probably a good portion of your lives, were doing your own religion your own way? Right? You're thinking, oh yeah, I'm doing this. I'm I'm earning my way to heaven, man. I, you know, I'm not like those other people. I don't die. I go to church, you know, on Easter and Christmas, or I do this, or I do that, or I go to confession, or I take communion, or I pray before I eat. And we think that somehow this is God's plan. And when by God's grace, our eyes are open, and the reality is, you know what? All that stuff is okay, but it's not going to do anything for you spiritually when it comes to you going to heaven. That's not how you're saved. And someone shares with you the message of the gospel that you're saved by, by grace of faith. It's not of yourselves. Lest you should be the one to boast about it. That's what God is doing here to Israel. We can trust God to look out for our best interests. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, what? All things work together for good. The all things isn't all good things. It doesn't say that. Some of the things in there are downright stinky. I mean, you don't want them in your life. But God says, no, they have a purpose. There's a reason why that's there. For those who are called according to his purpose. Or Jeremiah 29, 11 is for Israel, but it can be applied to us, definitely. For I know plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Don't you think God has a plan for your life? I hope you do. He has a purpose. You're still here. You're still breathing. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you future and a hope. I mean, that's something we hold on to dearly as believers. So God's plan requires surrender. And that's what Jesus said in the New Testament. He didn't do a bait and switch. You know, he didn't say, yeah, I want to forgive you all my sins. You know, just come follow me. And no, what did he say? He said, hey, if you want to follow me and you want to have your sins forgiven, you want to become my disciple, you have to take up your cross daily, an instrument of death, and you have to die to yourself daily. You have to give up everything that you've hoped for, that you've dreamed of, and you have to follow me. It doesn't matter whether it's a tax booth, whether it's a fishing boat, whether it's a company, whether it's a relationship. Everything needs to be set aside, and then you follow me. That's God's plan that requires surrender. But it also requires submission. It also requires submission. For God's plan to succeed in our lives, for God's plan to succeed in Gideon and his army, what they have to do? They had to submit to God's plan. Now, that's a bad word. We don't like that word, the word submit. We don't like giving up control to someone else. Nobody does. Gideon had to watch, just stand there and watch as the first 22,000 men just walked away. I mean, he, maybe he was thinking, well, God, okay, you want me to go tell my, my army, 32,000, they're not going to leave me. You know, 
They're going to stand behind me, God. Hey, if any of you guys are afraid, if any of you want to go home, go ahead. 22,000, just leave. I mean, that would be devastating to a leader. And then 9,700 men turned and went home, taking their weapons and their potential with them. Uh, so Gideon's left here with 300 who remained. He had to walk in obedience to God's plan for the battle. Or you know what? None of them would have a chance of surviving. None of them, including the other ones. Because I'm sure the Midianites wouldn't have just stopped at killing 300. They would have hunted down the 9,700 and the 22,000 that left as well and killed them as well, because that's the kind of people they were. So if you want to see the Lord's best for your life, then it's going to require obedience to his plan on your part. I mean, you may not like what the Lord is telling you to do or calling you to do. But you know what? You do it anyway. You do it anyway. Because obedience is important to God. Obedience is important to the Lord. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. Remember this story. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And then Keith Green wrote that beautiful song, right? To obey is better than sacrifice. What an incredible song. That's scripture. To obey is better than sacrifice. I mean, don't think, you know, you've given up time to be here Wednesday night or Saturday or Sunday morning, whatever it might be. Well, I'm sacrificing. <laughs> you know, if your heart's not right, you're not being obedient. <laughs> So your sacrifice is all for naught, really. It's his command for each of us. Ephesians 6, 6. It says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. We don't, we don't serve the Lord that way. Oh, look who's looking. Oh, I better go grab that mop. I better empty that trash. Look, at, I want them to see me doing all this stuff for God. But what? As bond servants of Christ, doing the will of of God, it says, from the heart. In other words, you know that this is what God has called you to do. And you, you'll do it if there's 100 people standing there, you'll do it if nobody's standing there. That's what's so incredible about just our small little church. There's people that do so much stuff. So much ministry goes on behind the scenes that people never even realize, don't even know. So it requires surrender, it requires submission, but it also requires steadfastness. It requires steadfastness. If Gideon and his army were going to experience the victory that God had promised, they would have to humble themselves under God's hand, surrender to his plan, obey his will, and proceed in faith. I mean, it, do you think it took great faith for 300 people to go out in battle against thousands? I mean, yes. It took great faith for them to take no weapons. I mean, that doesn't make any logical sense. It took great faith for them to stand there and blow their silly little trumpets and to break the pitchers and shine the lights. 
But guess what? God answered their faith by giving them a resounding victory, a victory that no one could ever even imagine. And so what are we saying? If, if, if you're going to see God's best plan in your own life, guess what? It's going to require faith. It's going to require faith. It's going to require trusting God. God is going to ask you to take some steps along the path of life that's going to be difficult, that's going to be, in your mind, unreasonable, that you're going to be unsure of. It's not going to feel natural. But the path to God's best is always, 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 always the path of what? Faith. It's always the path of faith. And God always, always honors faith. Why? Because faith always honors him. Faith always honors him. How do we know that? Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6, the New Testament, it tells us without faith, what? It's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's impossible for you to please God without expressing faith. Think of Daniel and the three Hebrews, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you revisit that story and you're going, man, God, this is kind of a, this is not a good plan. <laughs> this, is, this is not something that I would want to put these people through. It seems like a bad plan, but what happens? Faith secures the victory time and time and time again. So what are the results of God's plan? Third point here. What are the results of God's plan? When God's people submit to God's plan and carry it out for his glory, guess what? There are certain results that we can just expect. There are certain results that will be expected. In verses 21 to 22 of Judges 7, it basically says that every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And they just took off. What did they do? They turned on each other in mass confusion, in fear. They, they ran away from 300 men, thousands, an army of thousands. They fled the scene. In Israel... I mean, could you imagine the 300 men? <laughs> what just happened? I mean, <laughs> this makes no sense. I mean, praise the Lord, but wow, that was pretty incredible. The Midianites and the Amalekites turned on one another and they fled the scene, and Israel saw their enemies defeated. Why? Because Israel, because Gideon and the army, what they do? They followed God's plan. They followed God's plan. It's exciting to think that God has a plan for our lives, isn't it? God has a plan for you. When God no longer has a plan for you, guess what? You die. <laughs> and you go to be with him. That's his plan. But as long as you're here on this earth, God has a purpose. He has a plan for you. But guess what? 
the enemy also has a plan. Satan doesn't just sit idly by and say, oh, God has a plan for him. I'm not going to. No. The enemy also has a plan. The enemy wants us to be defeated in our Christian walk. The enemy wants us to be unhappy. The enemy wants us to be miserable. Because when all those things, fear and misery and unhappiness, when all that sets in somebody's heart, in somebody's life, guess what? It it just kind of paralyzes you. I've talked with people who, you know, were once part of the church, coming to church, involved, just up to their ears, just loving the Lord. Don't, Don't even see him now. Don't even see them. They're defeated. They're miserable. They're unhappy. What are we called to do? We're called to choose to walk in the Lord's plan. That's not God's plan for us. God's plan is not for us to walk around going, oh, well, woe is me, man. You know, did you hear that message from MacArthur? It's all over. I just throw in the towel. No. I mean, what, what people miss, I think, in that message was, I don't, think, I don't know if it was that message or another message, but he was talking about one of his little grandsons. And he said, man, what a day to be alive, to grow up and to know the Lord and be able to, who knows? I mean, we're talking like, I mean, this could really turn into like the New Testament times where you're actually persecuted for your faith. I mean, how exciting would that be? I mean, what if the government said, you know what? Sorry, you can't preach against homosexuality or abortion. We're going to take your tax exemption status away. Guess what? We wouldn't be able to afford this property. No way we could afford it. We couldn't afford to pay the taxes on this. You sell it. Sell it and, you know, save the money to support the missionaries and what do we do? We go full circle. We go back meeting in homes. See? I mean, that, that's what they used to do, right? In the New Testament, they said they went house to house. I mean, we could meet in a barn. We could meet in a field. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to us. I mean, yeah, it's convenient to have a place to come that's warm, that's nice, it's spacious, and sound system and video. And, oh, that's great. But it's not necessary. And the minute you begin to think, well, that's necessary, then, then we got problems. I mean, we want to utilize technology, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, we don't want to become so dependent on it that if the power goes out on a Sunday morning, oh, oh I guess we just got to go home. No. I remember I was at a shepherd's conference one time and the power went out. I think it was MacArthur was preaching. He just kept preaching. I mean, it was hard to hear him, even in the big buildings. There's no amplification. It, it gives you a healthy appreciation for what they used to do before sound systems. I mean, I could, I mean, without a sound system, I'd probably preach five minutes and I'd be hoarse. You know, I mean, so praise the Lord. But you know what? When you, when you choose to walk in God's plan, God will allow you to have victory over the enemy's plan. 
And he's just telling us, hey, you know what, be flexible. Doesn't mean we don't make a plan and carry it out and do that to the best of our ability, but if God changes the plan, if he throws us a curve, then that's what we gotta we gotta adjust to. So his the results here are his enemies are vanquished. Overwhelming victory. That's the second thing. God's people are victorious. It says verse twenty three, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and all the men of Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So these weren't people that were part of the initial battle. These were people maybe that went home. But once they saw, well, they won. They actually won. Let's go get the enemy. I mean, that would motivate you, wouldn't it? That's why all those movies, you know, those sports movies with the, um, I can't even think of the title of one, but, you know, they have ones about the football team, it's little kids that can't do anything, and they become an overwhelming champion or whoever. You know, I mean, you, you, there's, a, there's a bunch of them out there. That, that's what makes those so special. It's like, wow, they defeated all the odds. And so Israel here enjoyed a great victory because they chose to be obedient to God's plan, the best plan. And in verse 7 and 8, by the way, just to remind you, it says there that I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. So God already promised Gideon that he was going to win, hands down. He just needed a little encouragement to believe that. They already had the victory before the battle was ever even engaged in. It wasn't like, oh, I hope they pull this off. No, they already won. And God's plan for your life, for my life, is that we'll be able to understand that we can, too, walk in victory. That's why Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, in all things we are more than what? Conquerors. Why does he say that? Because we're conquerors through what? On our own? No, through him who loved us. This is God's plan. This is God's power we're talking about. Or 2 Corinthians 2.14. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Always. It's never in defeat. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Or in 1 Corinthians 15.57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's already done. He defeated our enemy on the cross when he came out of the grave. It's already, it's over. It's finished. That's why he said that. It's finished. And victory will only be truly our experience when we walk in his plan and not our own. If, if, if you walk in his plan, which is the best plan possible, you will never, ever, ever walk in defeat. You will never walk in defeat. I mean, that's why the Apostle Paul was able to say in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power. This surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul wasn't standing there saying, yeah, look at me, man. I once was Saul of Tarsus, but now I'm the Apostle Paul. No. He's saying this power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. He's pointing out, hey, this isn't a, you know, a little trot down the rose garden. This is difficult. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And he had probably an ego. I'm sure the Apostle Paul had an ego. Because he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, so to keep me from becoming conceited. <laughs> he had a tendency because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, he experienced things nobody has ever experienced. What did God do? God gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. See, even the bad things in our life, even the painful things, even the difficult things, there's a purpose behind them. Paul says, three times I pled with the Lord to take this thing away. But he said, you know what? No, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. Why? Why? Why would you say such a thing, Paul? Well, when I'm weak, I, then I'm strong. See, every one of us know that's true. We just got to get to the point where we can say, I am content with being weak. I'm content with insults being hurled at me. See, if there's insults being hurled at you, that means you're disrupting something. You're being the salt. You're being the light. If there's no insults coming, I'll never forget, I, I asked was somebody in our church, they came up to me after a service, and we were talking about uh, being persecuted for the faith and different countries and things like that. And, and they came up and they said, you know, I, in my life, you know, I'm a Christian, and, and I don't make any bones about it, but, you know, I've never had anybody insult me or persecute me for my faith. So I don't even know what you're talking about. And they just showed their hand. <laughs> you know, they showed their hand is what they did. In their mind, the Christian life is what? Coming to church on a Sunday. You know, uh, there was no insults because there was no disruption during Monday through Saturday in their own personal life because they probably kept Jesus under wraps. So how could Paul say this? How could he do this? Because he knew he was walking in the will of God. And even though it might be hard, God always has the best, the best plan. And that's, and that's if you can get your mind around that. If you are walking in the will of God, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter. I used to deal with this all the time before I met my wife as a single youth pastor and pastors trying to fix me up and trying to constantly hook me up with whoever, blah, 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 you know. And I, I just didn't care because it wasn't something that I was pining after. It wasn't something that, that I felt empty because I didn't have any somebody else. I was completely satisfied just doing the will of God and just being able to say, you know what, if God says, go there, I can go there and not even think twice. I don't have to ask anybody. I don't have to do anything. Just get in my car and go. 
That was very refreshing. And see, if you would have told me back then, you know, one day you'll be married. No, 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 not me, man. I am (laughs) servant of the Lord. You're right. That faithful day came when my future wife walked into First Baptist Church of Fremont. My heart was stricken. Sounds goofy, but I mean, it was so stricken, I couldn't even I couldn't even talk to her. I mean, when she, you know, because in the Baptist church, usually the pastors go to the back and you stand there and you shake the hand. When she came to the door, man, I was like, hey. (laughs) I mean, completely rude. (laughs) Because I thought, you know what? Uh, I've never felt this before. (laughs) This is foreign to me. (laughs) You know, I'm my own man. I kept on saying that. But God had a plan. And it's incredible, you know, the the blessings of marriage that I never even understood. But you know what? There's a lot of people that go down that road and they force the issue. They end up in a relationship they hate (laughs) because it wasn't God's plan. They're listening to all the voices telling them, oh, no, you have to do, you can never go into ministry and just be single the rest of your life. Never forget what John MacArthur said about Clayton Herb, his, his uh, worship leader. They've been together for like 50 years at Grace Community Church. He's his worship leader. He's been there almost as long as John has been there. And he's single, never been married. And Pastor MacArthur said when he first came to the church, he, Clayton came on staff and he said, boy, we, we'd, we'd pray and we'd pray for his wife, his future wife. We'd pray, Lord, just bring her. And he goes, after 20, 20 years, he goes, we just realized she must have died at birth because she ain't coming. <laughs> his, you know, and it was just kind of funny that he said that because it's like, wow, you know what? That's not God's plan for everybody. So you, you have to understand that you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to let God's plan be the best plan and go along with it. Well, the third thing here, God's name is venerated because the, the victory was won without a great army. <laughs> it was won without any battle, it was no fierce battle. I mean, the only battle that happened where they were killing each other, the enemy was wiping out each other, God got all the glory for this victory. None of the 300 men could go home and, oh man, you should have seen me on the battlefield. Yeah, man, I I had my trumpet and I was blowing. (laughs) That's not much of a battle story, right? That's more of a God story. That's like, wow, God caused this to happen. They couldn't go home and brag about what they had done in the field of battle. Just imagine how that would have went. But when we turn away from our plan and we embrace God's plan, we are assured of the victory. And we're assured that he will receive all the victory for what happens in our lives. He'll receive all the glory for the victory that happens in our lives. I mean, that's what life as a believer is all about anyway, right? Whether you eat or drink (laughs) or whatever you do, what does he say? Do all for the glory of God. It doesn't matter what you're doing. 
doesn't matter whether you're a garbage man, doesn't matter whether you're riding a horse, it doesn't matter whether you're a police officer, it doesn't matter whether you're a fireman or an executive at a company, it doesn't matter. Do, do it for the glory of God. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Praise you, give glory to you for your good works. That's what religion does, right? We're going to talk about this this coming week a little bit on Sunday. No. It says that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven because he rightfully receives the glory. Our lives, our obedience ought to point to him, not to yourself. If you're pointing to yourself, we got a problem. So ask yourself this question. Is God messing around with your plans? Is God messing around with your plans? The best thing you could do ever is just to submit to his plan. Because his plan is always the best plan. He has the best plan for life here on earth. To do his will when followed, it always produces victory in the life of a believer. And he also has the best plan for leaving this earth. The best plan for leaving this earth is to receive Christ as your personal Savior, is it not? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Or in Acts 4, 12, there's salvation in no other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, that's a message that people need to hear today. It needs to be spoken with clarity and boldness. It doesn't need to be whispered. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would um, just commit it to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that Gideon was a man who chose to obey your plan. And even though the odds were overwhelmingly against him, Father, you saw fit to bring victory to their camp because they were obedient, they submitted to your plan, they were willing to do what you asked them to do even though it didn't make sense. And Father, sometimes in our lives there there are things that, (laughs) directions that you call us to go in or plans that you have for us that make no sense whatsoever. And yet... Lord, it's, 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 it's so such a blessing when you see your plans come to fruition and you look back and you go, wow, we're so glad, so glad that we obeyed you in this area. And now we're reaping the victory. We're reaping the consequences of our obedience. Just as disobedience has consequences, obedience has consequences. And Father, we want to walk in the consequences of obedience. We want to live a victorious, joy-filled, gracious, loving Christian life so that all who come across our path would be drawn to you, the Savior, and give you glory. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.